0: Welcome to Making the Shift, the podcast from Working Well in Wellington that helps regional shift workers and their employers work better beyond the nine to five. This is episode two, where we're looking at how to pump up your mental well-being for yourself and everyone works with you. Okay, we we'll have a break. Little break? break. Last episode, we took a look at the background behind the Working Well in Wellington project and why you should be looking to create a mentally healthy workplace for shift workers in the first place.
1: If you've got a mentally healthy workforce, it has an impact on the bottom line for businesses. It's a lot easier
0: to deal with empowered
1: people in really good situations.
2: I can't think of anything worse than to go to a workplace that doesn't support mental wellbeing. That makes for a really sad society.
0: This episode we're going to look at how to take those first steps towards making your workplace mentally healthy. We'll take a look at how employers can instigate that change and how employers and employees can work together to create an environment where everyone is happy, healthy and productive. But first I want to introduce Elizabeth Brooks.
3: I'm the Principal Psychological Health and Safety Specialist here at WorkSafe Victoria.
0: If you're any sort of worker in Victoria, shift worker or not, you'll already be pretty familiar with WorkSafe. As the regulator for workplace health and safety, it's their job to reduce harm in Victorian workplaces. And that means mental injury too, not just the physical ones.
3: For us, this really means looking at ways to prevent injuries from happening in the first place. So we really want to look at working with employers to make sure that everyone is able to return home safely every day.
0: If you didn't listen to the last episode where we spoke about why employers should be thinking about creating and sustaining a mentally healthy workplace, Libby provides a great summary.
3: From a safety perspective, it's really important that we're making sure that people aren't being injured at
0: work. Of course, Libby's from WorkSafe, so she would say that, right? We do need to make sure that people aren't getting injured at work and that we're following all the legislation that's there to protect people's well-being. But even then, Libby says, there's even more benefits to keeping people safe at work than just making sure we're staying out of trouble with the law.
3: We spend a third of our lives at work. It's a huge part of our identity, is our profession and what we do. It's really important we enjoy that. Feeling valued at work and feeling really supported at work is also critical. And the outcomes are that people will perform better. There will be organisational outcomes, over and above safety outcomes that organisations can really benefit from.
0: So you're sitting there thinking now, well, Happy more productive workers, less trouble with the law. All that sounds great, but how do I make my workplace mentally healthy? Where do I start? Well, that is a very good question, and one that we have to answer by asking another question. What is mental well-being? You'll recognize organizational psych Rachel Palmer from last episode. For her, mental well-being is more than just not having a mental illness.
1: It's that thriving and flourishing. I suppose at that sort of practical everyday level, it's feeling like I have the resources either around me or within me to deal with the stresses that life throws at me.
0: Thriving and flourishing. Get the resources. Got it. Better make a list. Sounds like I've got to get that psychology degree, start teaching meditation, organising a walking group. Does the aromatherapy place offer express delivery? How am I going to fit these massage chairs into the break room? No, I can't do the yoga retreat next week. That's when I'd plan the visit from the mindfulness coach. Why is the feng shui so negative in here? Okay, so when we hear mental well-being, it's easy to work ourselves into a frenzy, thinking we've got to diagnose everybody's mental illness and send our team to the top of a mountain for a meditation retreat. But thankfully... That's not our primary focus as employers. What is our primary focus, though, is making sure that at least our team goes home from their workplace as healthy as they came in.
3: It's an employer's responsibility to create a safe environment where staff can thrive. So you don't want your staff leaving any worse than how they arrived at work, and you want to make sure that they feel safe and supported at work. I have this conversation a lot with organisations, and one of the things is we can't control what happens in their own personal life. Okay, but there are some things within your control and the Act and the legislation makes it quite clear that there is a responsibility on the employer to make sure that they reduce those risks to people's psychological well-being as much as they can. It doesn't mean that they can fix everyone's problems. It means that they can support people through the process and not do more harm.
0: So we're not talking about suddenly turning your workplace into a meditation retreat, thankfully unless you actually plan on running a meditation retreat, in which case that's a pretty sound piece of business advice. Instead, employers should be looking at their jobs and their workplace and asking themselves one question. Is my workplace causing harm to people's mental health?
3: Employers can look at what they can control within the workplace and specifically, we talk about psychosocial hazards within an employer's control that can positively or negatively influence workplace mental health. So the first place to start is to consider how these factors are being managed in the workplace and how they can be improved.
0: I mean, it, it sounds a bit ominous, but I reckon you've already got a pretty good handle on this. You know that from a physical safety point of view, you do your risk assessments and you eliminate the hazard. And it's exactly the same with mental wellbeing. Looking after your team's mental health requires exactly the same proactive approach and not just focusing on an employee assistance plan or an EAP after the damage is already done.
1: One one of the most important things about mentally healthy workplaces is that they're proactive and they're looking at the root causes. Too often leaders think that ill health is the problem of the individual. They don't actually, you know, stop to think about how the work environment is is contributing to a lack of well-being or mental ill health. We're getting really good at this from a, a physical safety point of view. We understand know, if someone breaks their leg, we need to fix it. We understand that it's better to put a big sign in front of the trip hazard rather than have them break their leg. We understand that actually removing the trip hazard <laughs> is even better than the sign and the fixing. And that's what we need to get to from a mental health perspective. We need to understand that removing those causes of mental distress and, and mental ill health, rather than giving people resilience training so that they can put up with a bad environment or teaching them mindfulness techniques, you know, so that they can cope with the stress. And look, I don't want to completely dismiss that because there there is a place, you know, if someone breaks their leg, you're not going to say, well, you're not going to put it in a plaster cast. So we, we need that stuff as well, but we need to get to that point of getting to the root cause and removing as far as possible and investing. Getting rid of a trip hazard can cost money. Maybe you need to get a builder in. Maybe you need to get an architect, some ergonomics expert. Again, we need to invest in these things, and they can cost money. But if we can get rid of you know those things that produce mental ill health, it's going to have the downstream effects of of not needing the the fixing up
3: later.
0: And Libby agrees.
3: Keep it as preventative as possible. Try to remove the hazard. Reduce the risk as far as reasonably practicable. Don't focus on your EAPs at the end. Some roles, you can't help it. You need the EAP at the end, that's fine. But where you can help it, remove that risk or reduce it as far as you can.
0: So in looking for some of those hazards, what's the best way to start? Well, before you get out onto the floor and start peering over the top of your clipboard at people, it's important to plan for your team to be actively involved in this process. Together, you can look at your jobs, your workplace, and decide, along with your employees, what the problems are and what the solutions might be.
3: I guess the first step really is to look at what risks may be there, what hazards may be there, and then to try and explore in whatever way you want to, try and explore to what extent that is relevant and happening in your workplace. We would always advocate for the HSRs, so that's the health and safety representatives, to be front and centre of those conversations because they generally have an understanding of what's going on and really getting them involved and to understand what's going on.
0: Coming up with solutions together with your employees is absolutely critical to avoid pushback. Again, this requires really good communication and a collaborative approach
3: it comes through quite a few workplaces that we go to is this feeling of disconnect between senior managers and frontline workers and even just having them come through the workplace regularly and having those casual conversations to really understand what people are going through and of course you may not say quite honestly to your boss what's going on but the incidental conversations and building those relationships can help as well one of the key things is supervisor support in a meaningful way and listening to your staff and having those conversations with your staff and really understanding what's going on for them. Because even if you don't see it as a problem, they might see it as a problem and then that should be part of your response. So you really need to consider that how they're feeling is actually really
0: important. And need I impress on you here, dear listener, that it can be all too easy to forget about your shift workers during this process? Many an organisation has fallen foul of the trap of running employee consultations during the hours of nine to five, meaning that often shift workers don't get the same opportunity to air their concerns. Saputo Dairy Australia's Scott Rebecca admitted that one of their mental well-being programs, designed to help their team get better sleep, received a bit of a negative response for exactly that reason.
4: To be honest, we forgot all about shift workers. We had some you know PDFs that we're giving out. They were basically ripping ripping them up. Go, these are no good to us because this is just a nine to five employee, and we're a shift worker.
0: But to their credit, Saputo listened and have since made efforts to include all their staff in their well-being efforts, including their shift workers. And since participating in the Working Well in Wellington program, they've made even bigger strides in looking after the mental health of their shift workers. Scott says that doing so helped Saputo better live its organisational values, as well as all the other benefits we've discussed already.
4: It's just thinking about your workforce more and- Try to better understand who they are, so that your messaging and and how you communicate with them, and, and what you do, that you are capturing the, the idiosyncrasies of their workforce, and and look at it from a you know diversity, equity and inclusion. And I think you know using that as a, as a guide, making sure well, if we are going to be an organisation that is saying that we're diverse and we're you know looking at our equity and, and so forth and inclusion, that we are including everyone, which includes our our shift workers as well.
0: So we've got our workforce on board, all of them, and we're ready to start identifying hazards. As we learned in the last episode, the best place to start is looking at how our workers' jobs are actually designed.
3: Making sure that work in and of itself is clear. They know what they're doing they don't have to do too much. If there is a known risk associated with the type of work they're doing, then trying to reduce that risk so far as possible. It may involve giving them more job variety. It may involve removing them from certain tasks a little bit more so that they have less exposure to things that potentially are harmful.
0: So first and foremost is making sure that the demands of the job aren't causing your team's mental well-being to crash. And while no job is gonna be 100% enjoyable 100% of the time, at least being able to minimise exposure to the parts that are harmful can really make a big difference. The next element is the organisational factors, all the stuff about working in your workplace that isn't the actual job itself. This can be a heap of things, like the policies and the procedures that your organisation has to its culture. But one of the most important factors that both Rachel and Libby say influences how employees perform at their jobs are their supervisors and leaders. Are the leaders helping to set a good culture? Are they walking the talk, so to speak?
1: Are they saying go home, get a good night's sleep while they burn the candle at both ends? The absolute hygiene factor is to implement the policy. So if the policy says that you're entitled to a break let people take the break. You take the break as a leader. That hero culture of, I don't need a break. Whatever it is, if it's in policy, just do it. And if the policy is not right, then challenge it. (laughs) There's that sort of just basic role modelling, basic behaviours.
0: The quality of leadership is extremely important in being able to listen to, to understand and to support the mental health of the people that the supervisors supervise. And then it's even more important for those leaders to act and be able to act on what they hear.
3: There's also sometimes an indication that they don't feel that supervisors listen to them. It may be that the supervisors actually can't do anything. They're not empowered to do anything.
0: So how do leaders of organisations get the best mental wellbeing outcomes for their shift workers? As with a lot of things, it all comes back to communication. Communication to understand what each other's thinking and to design a solution together that works for leaders and for employees.
1: They need leaders who are literate in the language of the work-related factors and, and what it is in the environment that supports mental health, and that they have the skills and the confidence to, to have a conversation with their team members and co-design those solutions. It's not a one-size-fits-all, and it is about being able to have that conversation and co-design what's going to work for the individuals.
0: For Scott at Saputo, he's identified that increasing his leader's mental health literacy improves the safety of his team.
4: We are looking to increase the number of mental health first aiders that we have so that we can promote that and ensure that people are aware that there's people to talk to, that they can triage, they can provide uh, more information around what support's available in those regional and local areas. And One of the things we do know that it's much more difficult to get access to allied health professionals in regional areas than maybe in, in, in a metropolitan environment as well. The more it's talked about, the more visibility, and I think there's a lot more visibility around mental health now. What we do know is it needs to be talked about. It needs to be brought to the surface. It needs people allowed to have those conversations without fear of being judged because they may be struggling.
0: We'll be diving more into things that might need changing in your workplace in later episodes. But right now, we're going to take a deeper look at how to make some of those changes actually stick. The techniques and approaches around change management could fill a whole other podcast series, and we'd encourage you to check out some other resources if you're interested on how to make this a seamless transition. But for now, let's get Rach to give us a little bit of guidance on the basics.
1: Once an employer has got the motivation to improve the work environment and then has the initiatives, there's an element of change management that needs to happen in order to make that real.
0: Rachel says there's two parts to change management. The first element is probably the bit you already knew about.
1: That's a lot of spreadsheets, basically. It's it's planning. So you've got your stakeholder management spreadsheet. You've got your comms spreadsheet. You've got your all your, your plans and you put in place training. And that's, it's quite mechanical in a lot of ways.
0: But the next part is the most important. And it involves working with your people to manage the change together, rather than having a top-down approach.
1: And it's a bit backwards in some ways. And I mean that quite literally because transition starts with an end. So for example, you want to change the stories about what a high performing you know, employee looks like. You, know, you want your high performing employee to be someone who does take breaks, who admits when they're feeling tired, who role models certain behaviors. That's, that's quite a big transition. So the first step in that is is that person needs to let go. It's not that they were wrong. It's not that you know you, you're discrediting their career, but we're in a new situation with a new future, and that person needs to let go. So transition starts with an end, and then there's sort of this phase of it being quite messy, and you're experimenting, and you've got to be curious, and you know some things work and some things don't, and then you get to the beginning. And that's where the environment's changed. People have been through that journey and they're ready to implement and to to live the new kind of way that things need to be.
0: It is, to quote one of the classic kids' movies, the circle of life, although it also has a lot of the hallmarks of what you recognize as a grieving process. And this is why it's so important to involve your team in the process. When you don't involve your team in the process of change, the management get a head start on that grieving process.
1: In your kind of classic change management framework, you go through this process of not not wanting the change, questioning the change, then kind of grudgingly kind of accepting the change and then doing the change. And what happens is leaders are ahead on that curve. So leaders get to that acceptance and implementation before their team. And their team is back at doubting it and questioning it, but their leaders are going, yep, this is it. We're charging ahead and the team's behind them.
0: But instead by taking a collaborative approach. Your team can go through those stages together, trying out different solutions and approaches until they strike a balance that everyone can be satisfied with.
1: And it means that leaders are listening, they're questioning, they're experimenting, and you're doing it together rather than charging ahead with the new way of doing it while you've left your team behind.
0: This is sometimes gonna require a big culture shift from both employers and employees. And we're focusing a lot here on what employers can do, which is fair because they do have the most influence on how mentally healthy a workplace can be. But even if you are an employee, and even if it is hard to change a culture from the bottom up, there are some things you can do as an employee to help kickstart this process of integrating mental well-being into your organisation's culture through your own behaviours.
1: The simplest sort of way uh, to think about culture is that it's behaviours, it's the stories that are told, and it's the systems. So with the systems, like that's the policies, the processes, you know, all those sort of things. So, you know, raise it with HR, raise it with your manager, find a trusted person. So it's not that employees are powerless when it comes to that, but when it comes to the behaviours and the stories. I think that grassroots sort of making those changes from the bottom can be really effective, really powerful. As an individual, you can make a conscious choice about what stories you retell. And if the examples of what is good behavior, if they get changed by what is retold, that that can be powerful. It can be as simple as you start telling the story about the dad that took four weeks Parental leave when their newborn was born, and how amazing that was, versus the guy that took two days and was straight back at work, and how amazing that was. Being able to redefine through just storytelling and and hold and choosing very carefully who the heroes are can have a big effect. I mean, obviously it's great when the leaders get on board and the rhetoric changes from top down, and then you're going to get the double whammy, but you you can still have a level of agency, uh, a level of choice that isn't going to get you fired when it comes to deciding what you want to be held up as good practice in your organization.
0: As Jules, our nurse from last episode says, you can also help in supporting your colleagues when something's not quite right and gently starting that conversation too.
2: Yeah, I'm definitely one of those people. I, without trying to be intrusive, of course, but if I can see someone's not themselves, like I think it's important that we look out for each other and that we're able to just say, hey, hey, how you doing there? Like, we all need it. We all need compassion and we all need support. And I think if we can't give it to the people who we spend the majority of our time with, you know, it, it just doesn't work.
0: So, What are some top tips for employers trying to prevent mental injury and improve the mental well-being of their workforce?
1: One, leadership. Invest in your leadership. Make sure that they have that mental health literacy um, and they understand what the work-related factors are and how they relate to their organization. Two, look at your systems and your processes and your policies and align those with with best practice look at what are the triggers in the employee life cycle that can trigger mental health and and look at ways to address those from a systems perspective and then three conversations talk with your employees co-design come up with the solutions
4: together to implement
0: for scott it's about showing you care about employees as people remember that
4: the reason that we're here is that we've got workers who are working shift work who are manufacturing and turning our raw material of milk into whether it be cheese, powder, whatever it may be, that they don't just work nine to five, they're working whether it's 24-7, 24-5, whatever it may be. And we need to be thinking outside the square that uh, they're the only reason we're here. You know, Without them, without products that, that are manufactured at our sites, none of us really have a role. The best advice is have the conversation, have a culture of care. If you do show your care and that you really do care about them, not just as an employee but as a person, and, and, and treat them more from a humanistic perspective, they'll talk to you, they'll tell you how it is, and, and you can work a lot better with boys and get better outcomes.
0: And most importantly, Jules has got some great advice from the perspective of an employee
2: if you're manager or things like that I think that being present with your staff is a really big thing like if you're just sitting away in an office or something and you're just like oh yeah the services are here or it's through an email that's all well and good but get to your staff and have conversations with them and and promote these things and have that open door policy where people feel like that they can approach you lead by example and we're all we're all in this together we all we all do it tough so i think yeah having the support of organization managers and even your peers uh, you know teamwork makes the dream work isn't that what they say
0: next time we start our look at the four most effective things to get right when you're looking after your shift workers mental health we're gonna focus on the first two in the next episode and they also happen to be my two favorite activities. Sleeping.
2: What you're doing is sending kind of mixed messages to your body clock.
0: And eating.
1: By seven or eight o'clock at night, we, we can see very definite differences in how your body metabolizes
0: food. Don't miss it. Make the Shift is a podcast produced as part of the Working Well in Wellington toolkit by Wellington Primary Care Partnership and funded by WorkSafe's WorkWell Mental Health Improvement Fund. This podcast was recorded in Gippsland on the traditional lands of the Gunai Kurnai and Bunurong peoples. It was produced by Jetstreamer and voiced by Chris Plumridge. For more episodes, search for Make the Shift on Apple Podcasts, Spotify and wherever else you get your podcasts. For more information about the Working Well in Wellington initiative or to download the toolkit, visit maketheshift.org.au.